0: Perhaps you're there now. You watch what's happening from afar, and with the silence of a god, decide to do nothing. Perhaps you write, you think poetry is a waste of time, for eternity can't be rendered in languages, and death after death has a different name. Words lose their meanings, mean nothing. Perhaps you watch the world from afar pouncing on itself to devour itself. Perhaps you think, how do people on earth not realize they're enemies of themselves? You're surprised. Is there on this earth what makes life worth living? Perhaps you're indifferent because you've despaired of this world and fulfilled your duties before leaving. You've earned the right to retire. Perhaps from time to time, or so we like to believe, longing surprises you. So you decide to be a breeze that freely crosses from Mount Carmel to Beirut, Perhaps sometimes, or so we imagine, you write a poem and send it to us through the sunlight. That was the poem Four Years
1: Without You for Mahmoud Darwish by Samar Abdel Jabbar and translated by Zina Heshembeck and read to you by my co-host, Marsha links Hi,
0: Marsha. Hi.
1: Uh, I'm Ursula, and we just read that poem to Mark, uh, the end of Women in Translation Month. And uh, also, I suppose, to mark um, the beginning of a new season of Bulak and our own return to our respective homes in (laughs) Amman and in Rabat. Uh, We've both both been traveling a lot and uh, it's nice to settle back in um, and uh, sort of catch up on Things like the Women in Translation Month project and all the other projects that, that you've been working on, Marsha, and the books we've been reading or the books that were waiting for us when we got back home and that we're looking forward to reading now?
0: Yes, the books that, that uh, came in the mail and have to, I still have to go to the post office and collect because I just got here. It's that's exciting. That's always,
1: yeah. I know that's always a lot of fun. And I, I got, a, I got a couple. I managed to time it right, so I got a couple books when I was in the states, and I had a couple very satisfying visits to French bookstores and used bookstores while I was traveling. Although I had to make tough choices about what I could fit into my luggage or not. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> And then of course it's nice to have things that when you when you when you get back home. Um but uh you have been doing a lot for for Women in Translation Month on the Arab Lit site. And actually I don't know the
0: background or the history of this initiative. Sure, I think okay. I think it started in 2014. And it was the, I, it was sort of the brainchild of just a particular reader, um, Metal Radzinski, And um, it, it spread from, I think, the intersection of two different projects. And one is this Vida project about looking at how much women are published in, in the media and particularly in sort of literary criticism, how many women's books are not published, but reviewed and reviewed seriously in different publications. And then also this 3% movement which looks at like how little of the literature that we read is literature and translation and when metaltal started to, to look at this and I have no idea if I'm saying her name correctly I've only ever seen it on the internet um, she found that generally speaking it was you know 70% of the work translated was by men and 30 percent by women and then if you looked at sort of what got reviewed and what got prizes it, it skewed further towards men. Um, and, uh, it's, it's interesting because, um, personally, my feelings about this month, um, uh, are sort of very labile, very change and are a bit volatile. Like there are so many, there are things that I, I love about it because it does give us a chance to look for new writers, um, uh, open up to new voices. I think, you know, translation can often be about, um, just what's established, you know. So there are translations of Mahmoud Darwish and Adonis, but are there translations of Samar Abdel Jabbar? Well, no, not until Zaina translated this poem. Um, And Arabic is, you know, similar. It's about 70-30. It's funny because one year I did try to do something for the other way around, English literature translated into Arabic. Um and I found that fiction was much I mean, of I had to go kind of publisher by publisher and it was nightmare and I didn't really make any conclusive, but to what I saw was that fiction was about 50-50, whereas non-fiction skewed much more male um in translations into Arabic. Whereas in general, translations into English are much more like sort of 70-30. And um I think, so the idea of the month is just to highlight women's writing in translation and to, to also to expand, I think it has become like in the beginning, it was a lot of translations of women's writing from French, German, and Spanish, which, uh, and other sort of Italian, European languages, which uh, Swedish, Norwegian, which are the sort of more common pathways of literary translation. And. It has slowly, sort of, um, I think, attempted to become a, a broader and and um, looking for new women writers, more experimental women writers, women writers not from being translated from European languages, or if translated from European languages, then say a French, a francophone writer from from Mauritania versus from France. Um, I guess my ambivalence about the month. Or uh, my reservations, or uh, um, are, are that you, so? There's <laughs> there's a perception, and I've read this in a couple of different pieces um, by male writers that all Westerners care about all everything that's published in translation is by women. Women could write anything, scribble on a napkin, and it will be published in translation. Um, the Arab women woman writer is um, magic in the eyes (laughs) i can't even remember who i'm quoting in the eyes of the european um and this is you know statistically it's not true um but there's the perception that you know you have to be queer or a woman or whatever to be in order to be translated um and and in a sense this is so so um I I don't remember where uh, (laughs) I'm quoting this from, but Dina Muhammad recently said, you know, so she said it's kind of a myth that people won't support diverse work. she means in European, in English and other European languages. Um, People want you to write about the issues, Islam and feminism, um, but they want you to write about it in a very specific way. And she said in the end, you know, um, uh, you know, it's like a very specific kind of women's empowerment. And in the end you start to feel patronized. And, um, and so I think, uh, while it's, I, I love exploring new, uh, women's voices. And I always during this month discover new writing. I also, uh, weigh it against, you know, putting all women's writing in one sort of basket or making it a sort of a, Women can write as long as women are writing about women things, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, um, and and yet, in the end, I always participate in it because I do love the act of discovery. It, it's what makes, attracts me to literature at all.
1: Well, and the kind of things that you've been running on Arab Lit are like, you know here are 10 female short story writers from egypt or here is you know uh poetry it, it is it is just ways for people to discover female writers uh, i don't know if you if people are transiting things specifically for this month or you're just going around and finding things that that were available and sort of like categorizing them a little and 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 emphasizing you know where people can find them But it's not, I think there's a lot of diversity there. And like you say, you're just kind of uh, giving people the chance to check these women out. I mean, you know, on top of whatever gender dynamics there are in translation, there's the underlying question of the dynamics of writing and publishing to begin with. So I think more men, certainly it seems to me in the Arab region until recently. I mean, if you look at well-known writers, it skews heavily male. I, I, I mean, until quite recently, I think. Like if I start naming off the top of my head sort of like some of my favorite Arab writers, I'm embarrassed by the percentage of which are male. And I think that has partly to do, you know, with the opportunities that men had to write and have literary careers and partly to do with who was chosen to get, be translated and then, you know, continue to receive attention.
0: Right. Um, I I think, so uh, as part of Women in Translation Month, we did a panel on, um, Arab women's writing and translation. Um, and I think there is also a, a divide between poetry and prose. And anyway, Iman Marcel and I know Yasser Abdel Latif and to some extent uh, the poet Julan Haji have talked about this, like um, the, the sort of dramatic shift towards the, the interesting energy in Arabic poetry. And uh, Ala, uh, Khaled has also talked about this, the interesting energy and power of Arabic poetry now being poetry largely written by women, not exclusively. And of course, as Imen emphasized, sort of, it's not, it's not that you just show up, you're a woman, write a poem, it's great. Um, but that, it, I mean, her supposition, so she um, didn't necessarily have like a, she didn't know why. And she said, and she hasn't heard like sort of a convincing argument about why this is. Um, but she supposed that, you know, women writers like, in uh, Nezekiel uh, Malaika's time, for instance, um, were writing, um, f- you know, uh, attempting to sort of emulate a masculine voice in some way, that they were writing in this sort of masculine context. And then since the 90s, when the poem be- poetry became sort of more intimate and personal versus sort of prophetic and mythological, um And, and, you know, because women's voices have been marginalized, she also like threw this out as a possibility. Because women's voices are marginalized, it gives them sort of more space poetically to move around and experiment. Um, But as we started to like make a list, um, I think there are, I mean, a lot of the most amazing voices in Arabic poetry right now are women. Are are they translated? No, but you know, pretty much no contemporary poetries. Very little contemporary but, poetry is translated. So
1: it doesn't surprise me that I'm actually not that because because basically I think in a way my my specialization is like mid to late 20th century novel, right? right. Like in right. a way my introduction to Arabic literature is Egyptian literature and and that's, you know, and uh, and and I'm not very up on poetry. So the landscape that I'm familiar with is pretty male. Um, if you're looking at like the sort of famous modern novelists, uh, as opposed to to these kinds of changes. I mean, the other thing I would throw out there, I think, if in terms of m- more women's writing being available and and being very good, because for women's writing to be very good, it means that there needs to be a lot of women writing. Like you, you know, the reason that it will seem that there's more good writing by men is because there's just more men writing. And to get to the point where something is excellent, you need a field. You need a lot of people contributing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, So
0: it's so funny because people often tell me, oh, there's so much, no, I mean like a, a certain small amount of people will tell me, oh, there's so much terrible writing in Arabic. Like there is, Terrible writing in literally every language.
1: (laughs) In every like, there's terrible everything in every field. Like you just you need production so that people can hone their craft. But I do think, I mean, from my experience, like living in in Cairo, you know, the actual lived circumstances of of Arab women, like the reason I think it was very hard for them to have literary careers, is 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 all about the sort of other pressures that you faced in life, like you know, the kinds of environments where you needed to network and, and the kinds of schedules that you needed to have and the kind of personal freedom that you needed to have and the sort of absence of family pressures and social pressures, which all eat up a ton of your time. Right. And, and so and I the, might The throw lack out, of encouragements. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there's a million reasons. And right. and, and so it doesn't, you know... Right. those are very
0: practical reasons. So I might throw out another possible reason for sort of a shift to more, um, amazing Arabic poetry by women, which is the increased ability to publish online and, um, sort of, um, you know, reduction of some of these official publishing barriers. So you can start to publish poetry to a, to a, you know, a smaller audience on Facebook, wherever, um, the, the poem, you know, the, Poem that I read, I think she she published on her own personal website first. I mean, she also publishes in um, magazines as well. But um, and of course, poetry. Maybe I don't. I don't have any idea. Um, not being a, uh, a a a poet, but maybe you can write a poem and then you know do you know? It's not like you sit down with a novel and you must sort of commit to it as a job. Yeah. Maybe. And
1: and then the other thing you brought up, which is the complaints, I'm assuming on the part of male writers, that there's almost a reverse discrimination right now in the, in the attention that the West or sort of Western readers or publishers or translators would pay to female writers. I mean, I don't find that convincing. I understand what they're talking about a bit. First of all, like if they're saying, Oh, They're not publishing the, they're publishing women writers that don't write that well. Like, I'm sorry, a lot of male writers who don't write that well have been translated (laughs) and published. Like, (laughs) right. That happens all the time. I mean, it, 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 that assumes that every male author who's been translated has like totally deserved it. I mean, you know, um, and, you know, yes, there's always, you know, lame commercial. Pressures to match certain stereotypes and fit certain frameworks, and that applies to Arab women perhaps even more aggressively than to Arab men. Mm. Uh, but um, you know, the idea that it is easy for anyone to be translated,
0: right? I to think, find to find a publisher in translation is. A nightmare project for anybody, no matter what their level of excellence or fame.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it seems to me that still a lot of the authors who, I mean, you know, Alaa Laswani has all of his books immediately translated into dozens of languages. And, and, um, I, I don't think that, I, I think that in fact, probably more Arabic literature is being translated just in comparison to a decade ago, uh, than, than ever. And, you know, authors of, of both genders are benefiting from this. Um, and the, I do understand the frustration that authors in the region can have with the like focus on identity on like really narrow definitions of identity or very particular narratives that are sort of like in demand, in right in the right. market. Absolutely. I think that,
0: and that's the story of the author and the yeah. I, I mean, so I um, one of the things I did over the summer was a series of interviews um, that were supposed to be framed as interviews of of refugee exiled writers, and the number one thing that. That came up again and again was people's frustration with the way in which um, they were framed in Europe and the way the interest in particularly Syrian literature in Europe being such a narrow interest that you must talk about your refugee-ness over and over. And that's what people wanted to write. And, And some writers found it like paralyzing.
1: Right. And it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling loop where like the only topic associated with that particular profile is that, and then that's the only topic expected or demanded. And um, no, I think that's, that's very unfortunate as is the idea that like women writers from any part of the world have to write about in some feminine way or about womanly topics, which you also sort of you know, mentioned. And I think, I think I sort of have mixed feelings about that, about that in the sense that I do think there's a point of view on the, that, that is based on being in the world as a woman in a, in a woman's body, having the experience of a gendered world. And that that particular point of view has been lacking in a lot of writing like historically and it's a good thing for there to be more of it for the for mm. for most writing to not always be written from a male point of view which i think is distinct in a lot of cases for, or at least different i mean i think there's things that male writers have not accessed about what it's like to be a woman in the world um mm. and it's not a bad thing for that view to be enlarged um so in a way, I think you know there maybe are particularities uh and and sort of additions and contributions, and not just women but all sorts of people who's who haven't been uh you know the the main narrators in most of the stories that we hear can 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 add, and at the same time, of course, I also feel like the thing that I sort of appreciate about literature is, is this sort of potential for some kind of universality or, or essential humanity or whatever you want to call it, where, you know, someone who is not me, I can, I can somehow access the experience of someone who is completely different from me. And I think ideally, you know, we can write from the point of view of, of others, we can stretch ourselves into right. other
0: I mean, points some of, of view. Yeah, right. And we think, might so want do, to,
1: and right. we might not just want to write about our own narrow experience. Like that might not be what appeals to us. Like our, right. we might writers might want to actually, you know, imagine themselves into like very different situations and they shouldn't be straightjacketed into only writing about their direct experience or, you know, communities they represent or so on and mm-hmm. so forth.
0: Well, I, so... As you're talking about these sort of... Um, so I think, you know, what Men was suggesting in, in this panel was that women poets of sort of the mid-20th century often were tr- attempting to write in this masculine voice. And I do think that men can also... It, uh, my favorite book by Elias Khoury is As Though She Were Sleeping, which is where he is attempting to take on not just this sort of female character or female voice, but sort of um, a perspective that is about... The changes in Lebanon and Palestine at the time um, that have to do with sort of different, you know, changes in food. It's like it's a it's a sort of a um, a more home based perspective, a more um, uh, you know whatever for for lack of a better framing it, for as he discussed it, like a, a more feminine look at the changes of this period right before the Nakba, and so I I, I think. Uh, for me, it was a super compelling book, and I believed in her as as a as a character, and I believed in this world as as an intensely sort of intimate world um, versus the kind of more public worlds of um, Gate of the Sun of Avialo, um, the more sort of male masculine worlds. So I don't think you know. Um, uh, uh, I think that that's like uh, it's great to have more literature in these, in these, exploring these areas. And it doesn't necessarily have to be written by women. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and I, I'm also
1: thinking of like, I feel like may so maybe there was a, you know, you, you've mentioned a couple of times on this idea of a you know, man, that there was the early women writers felt the need to remain within a kind of, uh, form that was had already been set by by their by their male contemporaries um uh, then I think there's also been a reaction later on of women writers in the Arab world that have really foregrounded their and have written a lot about the body and about sex and about you know and and have have almost developed this again quote-unquote feminine writing and I have very mixed feelings about that. Mm. Um, I'm. I can't think of a book in that genre that I've loved. You know, I I don't, and maybe it just doesn't speak to me because, um, because I don't. Well, you have I don't to know. tell me. So I tell what? I come from what, that what moment? I don't come from that background,
0: it. right? I mean, so I I so for instance, um, Iman's book on on Ayatzezet to me is like a very, um. I don't know, it's, it looks at home and family and, and it, it's not just a look at, or Sahra Khalifa, um, she's sort of re-envisioning the Nakba or re-envisioning the first Itfada from the, the lives of sort of ordinary women. And I love how she does that. And I relate to that very, of course, no, there's not any, like, it's not one of the sex books which
1: is also fine. I mean we talked about we we featured a very nice anthology of of erotic writing it's not to say that like all in, in um all writing about sex is like you know cheesy although it can be <laughs> and, and it's very um, hard to pull off definitely. it's one it's one of the hardest things to do i think the kind of writing that is sort of about the Exploration of women's sexuality and or their sexual liberation, mm. which is a genre a bit, I think, is, is just not interesting to me personally. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, uh, I don't find it particularly compelling. Um, but I think I'm getting a little bit off track, uh, with, (laughs) (laughs) with my own preferences about certain things. I, I mean, I think it is, it's a complicated thing. Like you say, this idea, of course, you know, we all have this nagging suspicion that like, we're not being exposed to all the good writing by women that's out there. We all know that there's kind of like structural impediments that are a little bit blinding us to potentially good writers that we might love and that we're just not connecting with because they're not as easy to find for historical and economic and all these reasons. And so it makes a lot of sense to try and promote them. And at the same time, it does raise all these questions about like tokenism and like why feature women only one month out of the year. (laughs) And, you know, like, and how to pick, like, are you just, are you picking how to, how to measure the identity versus, you know, the pure, quote unquote, pure writing. And it's, it's not an easy question to resolve. I think we just have to keep on grappling with it.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and sorry to lean on amen one more, one last time, and then I won't mention her again. Um, you know, she, she had this framing. She's like, you know, as we revisit the canon, as we revisit other things, you know, think about what do you like, you know, you've got really instead in among all these other things that you're examining. Does this resonate with you? Do you enjoy it? Um, and I think it's like an important reminder.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always have a kind of like, um, reaction a little bit when people say like, I'm spending a year only reading women writers or something. And I always feel like that takes away a little bit of my, the idea of doing it to take away a bit of my freedom to just read a book because I feel like it. And because I like it, like regardless of who wrote it, um, like it seems too structured almost as an effort.
0: I, I feel like, well, imagine know. doing your PhD and then only re- reading, you know, books about one narrow topic for years. <laughs> but that's why I didn't do a PhD.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I'm not. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not what appeals to me the most. Um, but so we'll we'll link in the show notes to some of the of the of the many lists that you've put together, um, featuring this work. And then there was also there's also a a new, a well, an ancient book, but a new <laughs> translation that right. uh, you know is is obviously an example of uh, of women's literature and translation.
0: Right. It's it's funny because so I think that it, one can argue that either way. So it, this is the the epic uh, or sira of Zat al Hemma, which just uh, came out in August in Melanie Magadot's really lovely translation or adaptation, you can call it. I think either one, um, and this is, of course, a very brief look at this sirah, um, which starts with the um, uh, Dalhema or um, Princess Fatima's ancestors, her great great grandfather, and then ends with her her death. But this is she, Melanie has translated eleven out of four hundred and fifty five um, sort of chapters or episodes in this, in this gigantic epic. And I think she wrote that all published, it is actually 6,000 pages. So obviously this came out from Penguin Classics and they weren't quite up for all 6,000 pages. Um, But this is an absolutely lovely edition. I have seen translated cirros before, and I never felt like they captured the Orality. I mean, not, not that these, not that she's not working from a printed text, and that these haven't been written down as manuscripts over the centuries, but but that these are, you know, performed texts, and that that I never felt before that I read one that captured that feeling of orality to the extent that I almost, in moments, felt like I was sitting there listening to a storyteller. I could feel the people around me laughing um, at certain moments. And um, I think it's a really enjoyable, it's framed, you know, as a, in a kind of a teaching text sort of way. Um, Melanie has a very um, straightforward and uh, introduction and sort of to give you like a whole idea of what this text is. And there's (laughs) sort of a kind of a, like a shout out to Disney because she's sort of, she's like, in this way, it's like Mulan In this way it's like Robin Hood. Uh, I, it almost felt like she was saying, "You could also make a film out of this; it would be popular." Oh. Um, and, um, but I think it's a really enjoyable uh, read. Uh, it, you know, in addition to, of course, you can you could use in the classroom. You could read an introduction, it, it, the introduction, and understand how this fits in sort of uh, world literature. Um, but so.
1: Um, uh, the sira, which I guess we are translated as like epic poem.
0: Yes, we're translating it as epic. Features a, a female heroine because I just saw the cover, so the and the cent- cover is yes, a- the center of it. So it starts out with her ancestors, but it's really her, and it ends with some of the exploits of her or her son. But it is really like yeah, it's her story, and and the um, the, the center of it is her. But there are other. Um, great women warriors in it as well. Um, and it, one of the other important aspects of it, so um, Melanie or somebody else has called it the quintessential frontier epic, is that it, it, it's set around borders between Byzantine and Arab, between Christian and Muslim. Uh, and, and of course, and also between man and woman, you know, you, you can change your identity in this book. In, in many different ways, and you can change back again. And um, a, a new order. Of this character who, she's only attracted to women, and then she meets El-Botol, and she is attracted to him. Um, uh, and people, even a, a race is um, sort of, uh, uh, not not porous, but like... <laughs> her fatima the, the great warrior at the center of it, fatima her son is is born black even though she is not black and her husband is not black and there's a whole um part about you know people confront her and she's um she's charged as an adulterer and she she sort of wins this battle um but where where did her son come from you know it, he came from god it's divine um, and and this also marks him in the same way it marks her as kind of an insider outsider he 's different from from uh from others around him um, and it's it's just it, you know it's a very um uh, really enjoyable um, series of, of of battles between byzantines and arabs between arabs and arabs and battles for a woman's being able to have control of her of herself. Um, so the thing I said is that um, so there's a part in the introduction where Melanie quotes this scholar whose name I am Remke Kruk. I'm not sure she wrote Warrior Women of Islam. And um, who says that the women don't represent the female angle in a male discourse, but embody the perceptions, anxieties, and desires of men in in this Sira. And in a sense, so Penguin quotes from, uh, suggests, suggests a, a likeness to Wonder Woman on the back. And it is in the same sense, there is, you do feel the male gaze in, in it, right? In the same way that Was you it feel- written by a man? Oh, I mean, who knows, right? These are sort of, um epics that were composed and then passed on and then um collected and then okay. rewritten okay um uh and and um as i've heard you know a a a woman scholar of um arabic literature say well you know that sort of the you can imagine that these were written by women maybe they were written by men who knows um but it does exist in a, a patriarchal context certainly um you know the this woman Noura, who who's, uh, who Nura, who appears later um in and there's a a, a long section she's uh, on the other side um she wins in parts she wins these battles because men are sort of blinded by her looks all, you know and all the women are in addition to being amazing warriors are also Uh, beautiful, but you know, this is true. I, I couldn't, you know, of all the sort of popular culture stories where women get to be warrior heroes, they're all also, you know, perfect looking. Um, So, but I also.
1: Aren't male warrior heroes also usually quite handsome?
0: Yeah, I guess they are also right. Handsome. Um, So, you know, I think the suggestion was that this is about the anxieties of men about um, women who don't want to be married and women women in positions of power. Um, but I also, I did find these stories really um, relatable. Like Fatima doesn't want to get married. She holds off getting married as long as she can. She, uh, then she's, she's forced into it. Then she manages to continue to keep her husband away from her for a long time until he convinces a friend to drug her and then rapes her. And that's what, how she has a child um and then but this this exists in this sort of gray area where it's legal everyone agrees that that was a, a legal thing that he did but immoral um her you know her father is very disappointed to have a girl um but then later embraces her when he sees that she is this amazing warrior um i i i don't know i wow, <laughs> even though sounds- these things all exist in a patriarchal context i really enjoyed them
1: well i mean also what What literature, especially of antiquity, doesn't exist in a patriarchal context? I mean, it all does. I mean, it still exists in a patriarchal context. There's no, there's no getting out of that. That's, that's, I think, and that's not a reason to, that's not a reason, one, for things to not still explore that context in very interesting and enlightening and sometimes slightly subversive ways. I mean... On the other hand I don't think you have to sell it like just because it features women it's always a, something empowering. It sounds like the Wonder Woman right, comparison right. is a little bit on that end, but the details of this story you're telling me, I mean this sounds just surprising and interesting and and, and like a great dramatic tale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In you know, in very much the way that these old what you would want if you came to a performance of a a storyteller. And so I I wanted to read a short section that is from a confrontation between Nura and Princess Fatima. Um, And it begins, Free me now, Nura requested of Princess Fatima, so that she could go to Shumadris before he passed away. I will send the hostages to you. Princess Fatima let her go. When al Batal saw Noura, he forgot himself and said, Greetings, dear princess. Noura ordered her guards, Let the blonde, blue-eyed one out. We'll exchange him for my father. They won't exchange him for me, my lady, said al Batal. Let the emir go and the wounded men, Maimun and uh, Abu al When Abdul Heb, Maymun and Abu al arrived at the Arab camp, Princess Fatima released the king. When the king arrived at the castle, Noura released Al-Battal and Tariq. Tariq arrived at the Arab camp and Princess Fatima released 100 of the room soldiers. What about Al-Battal, she asked. Is she holding him back? No, said Tariq. She told him to leave, but he refused. He wants to stay with her. Princess Fatima continued releasing companies of room soldiers until 200 commanders remained with her. Go on, get out, Noura said to Al-Battal so we can rescue our remaining commanders. Princess, I'm staying here to serve you. I neither want you nor your service. Get out, you wretch. I will not get out. Nora turned to her soldiers. Get the wretch out, or he'll probably rob us tonight. The soldiers set to removing him, but he always managed to return to the castle. Nora laughed at him and even spit in his face, but he simply opened his mouth and caught it, saying, delicious. Finally, the soldiers threw him out of the castle, and he made his way back to the emira. When she saw him, she released the last of the room prisoners. Then she called for a meeting of the emirs, only to find that three of them had been lost in battle. She saw that moon was injured and turned to her son. What were you doing? Did you come to this land for pleasure or for battle? I swear I was acting for our collective benefit al interjected amira go easy on him no one who saw that lady could remain in full control the amira laughed in exasperation al batal i have nothing to say to you you are a hopeless romantic ha huh. so that's the e- <laughs> so that's the end to one of the battles and uh <laughs> where in the end everybody gets released and you, you know of course people die and um uh, apparently one of the things that Melanie did in her translation was to um in, in terms of adapting it to an English language audience, she took out some of the gruesome violence and she said she removed some of the decapitation detail. Now I might have I actually might have liked some more decapitation detail, but um but but, it, huh. but uh you know yes, yeah, so this is the end of a battle and everybody sort of goes back to their homes and it ends okay. And it, it just felt, in this... Except for the one guy. He's like the guy who won't
1: leave your party <laughs> right, at the end.
0: Exactly. The one, the one guy who's ready to be spit on. <laughs> right. He's supposed to be conquering these damn Byzantines. What is he doing? Well, he's been seduced by Noura's beauty, I guess. Huh. But what although mean? she could apparently overcome 20,000 warriors single-handedly uh, in she the practice square. could get this guy to leave. She couldn't get this one dude to get out of her hair. Yes.
1: Well and that book just came out last month, right? Yes. All right. Um and then we have I mean quite a number of of books that have come out over the summer or uh that uh we've received over the summer that I think we're going to be talking about in future episodes. I don't know what you're most looking forward to. I think are we are we both already reading Sanala Ibrahim, the translation of Sanala Ibrahim's Warda.
0: Yeah, I think we're both rereading it actually. Um, uh, although you know, after a long pause, yes, I am. I am uh, rereading Warda by Sanala Ibrahim, which came out this summer. Um, Muhammad Khair Slipping, uh, translated by Robin Mosher, also came out this summer, um, and Warda was translated by Hosam Abu
1: and um, I mean, so we won't go into too much detail, but we're definitely going to be doing an an episode about this uh, later in the season. Uh, I mean, Sonali Ibrahim, obviously, the very famous and I think beloved uh, Egyptian novelist uh, and uh, lifelong leftist. And this book is interesting for a number of reasons, but it's about a female uh, freedom fighter in uh, the Dofar Rebellion in Oman, which is a kind of, I think, largely forgotten chapter. I mean, among the sort of tumultuous history of 20th century revolutions in, in the region, uh, this was part also of the civil war, connected to the civil war in, in Yemen. And so it's about an armed leftist uprising in the, in the in this Gulf country, um, and it features this female freedom fighter, so I think very, very interesting in the in the choice of of topic.
0: Mm, absolutely, and uh, you know, an interesting complex character that he makes of her. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to and and I read it so long ago. I read it in the French translation a long, long time ago, and so I've forgotten the story pretty much. So I'm. It's almost like I'm reading a A new book. Um, So I'm looking forward to getting to the end, um, because he kind of builds it like the detective story. So I'm trying, I'm waiting to find out what happens. Um,
0: And uh, what else? Uh, So there's two books from the Library of Arabic Literature that also came out in late spring, that I'm, both of which I'm really excited about. Um, One is Hanat Dieb's Book of Travels, uh, which was translated by Elias Mahanna. And that is this, uh, you know, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, um, the story of Hanat Dieb, who is one of the tellers of, of, of some of the additional Thousand and One Nights tales um, that he passed on when he was traveling uh, from, from Aleppo to Paris.
1: And and he was thought for a long time not to exist. I mean, the right. the French translator of The Thousand and One Nights was thought to have made up basically this this native informant who had supposedly told him some of these stories. Um, and then it turns out that he really did exist and he really did have this interaction and 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 provide these stories. And so um for people who are into the Endless complex backstory of the Thousand and One Nights, which traveled and was translated in all these different ways and added to in all these different ways. This is kind of a really interesting part of the story. I think the the diaries of um, this Syrian guide and sort of go between who spent several years in Europe and and contributed to this collection. Um, yeah, and
0: I think both of these, *A Book of Travels* and Phys- *Physician on the Nile*, which was translated by um, by El which was translated by Tim McIntosh Smith, are both sort of travel books that take you back in time. Uh, you know, it take you in place and and back in time, and are both you know these uh, really compelling descriptions of life in different periods. Written by um by foreigners of of course Baghdedi not as foreign to Egypt, but he's also going to explore a new place and he's describing Egypt and then particularly the intense, vivid description of the great famine of twelve hundred 1200 to twelve o two so I think those are both um compelling for what they do, but also as just as a read just as an interesting experience to, to read about. Hmm. So I'm excited to talk about those later as well. Yeah. Um,
1: and then I think the other book that we're both looking forward to reading is probably Basma Abdelaziz's new book. Um, the She's the Egyptian novelist who wrote The Q, um, which was a very well-received sort of dystopian story. Um, very, um, very clearly referencing, I think, current events in Egypt, but doing it in a way that was still very kind of creative and timeless. Um, and her new book is called Here is a Body. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, Translated
1: by Jonathan Wright. Yeah. And I. so I think, you know, we'll, I'm 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 very curious to see how she follows up the cue. I think this story is also, I mean, I I just read the first twenty pages so far, um, is is similar in style. I sort of hate reusing the word dystopian. I feel like it doesn't really describe right very well. Right, um, you know, it's just. Because their books about the world we live in, there's just a kind of, there's an element of slight speculative fiction, slight surrealism, a kind of like taking away of names and places, but like all the references are still very clear.
0: Right. I mean, I think I saw it described in in the Arabic as political fantasy. Um, sort so right. of. Oh, I think you're right. We do need a better term for it. Because dystopia is like sort of an inverted utopia. Um, but it's actually just about like the the real, the world
1: we live in. She's not right. making big uh, leaps. I mean, I think I'm giving nothing away in the sense that this is the plot summary description of the book on the book's website. But the premise is, uh, you know, the story is narrated from the point of view of an Egyptian street kid, a homeless boy who is, rounded up along with many others by some, uh, you know, nebulous, sinister government entity and sent to a kind of special training and rehabilitation camp, uh, for purposes unknown. And, um, you know, none of that is outside of the realm of things happening in our world today. Um, I think, and I think what she does is she captures the atmosphere of of fear, of repression, of violence, of deep sort of bureaucratic hypocrisy um, very well. I, as I remember, in the queue, and and I think that she's continuing to explore some of these themes.
0: Great. I'm also, I would also just mention that I'm excited for other people (laughs) to read Al Masha'a by Samari Yazbek, which will come out in the fall at some point. I think it's been delayed as Planet of Clay in Larry Price's translation. And it's uh, a compelling novel of, so it's the walker of this girl who can't stop walking as she, it's sort of a magical realist, um, a bit, uh, um, disorder that she has and of her life during Syria's civil war. And it just it's this beautiful sort of synesthesiatic syn, the how do you turn synesthesia you, into you an feel, adjective?
1: Yes. Is that when you feel one, you <laughs> yes. experience one sense with another? What's normally, yes. uh, yeah, yeah I, I can't, I can't do it, but I
0: understand what you're saying. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a sort of portrait of, of that moment through this, uh, you know, it's like through a naive, wise, holy fool kind of narrator, but beautifully done. Huh, cool.
1: Well, we will either be revisiting some of these books with full episodes um, in the fall and, uh, but we'll also put links to all of them in the show notes for people who are interested, maybe even interested in reading them ahead of our episodes. Um, and, uh, and, and otherwise who are just interested in, in learning more, um, about these titles. Uh, I would also say if you, if you haven't already, we had two kind of exceptional episodes over the summer that we recorded, um, while in transit, which was logistically a bit of a challenge. (laughs) Um, and these were really worth, uh, checking out. Um, they were, uh, sponsored by the Sheikh Zayed, um, book award and they were with winners of the award. And so one is with Iman Marcel discussing not just, uh, her award-winning book, but, um, a lot of other issues in her work and new projects that she's working on, um, the whole issue of being attracted to marginalized writers, what a marginalized writer is, uh, how a canon is constructed. Um, and then we also had an episode uh, with the academic Michael Cooperson, who's done a really amazing translation of uh, medieval Iraqi epic. And uh, I was really happy um, to read to read a rogue's tale. Um, and, uh, I think again, that was a very interesting conversation about how he approached translating this, this really sort of shape-shifting text. Yes.
0: Impostures. Um, yeah.
1: so definitely, I mean, it, yeah, I, th- those, those things are, are worth revisiting. Um, if you didn't have a chance to to listen to them over the summer And then if I may, I'm going to plug something that I wrote. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) So um, I didn't write much over the summer, but uh, I had a piece come out on Edward Said and a new biography of him, of his. Um, And uh, the biography is Places of Mind, A Life of Edward Said by Timothy Brennan. I actually uh, didn't particularly like it and um, thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, but uh, it gave me the chance to think and read uh, more Saeed and also to read Saeed's own autobiography, Out of Place, which I thought was fascinating. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't. No, I never have. So actually, I think it. I recommend it. Like it's one, a portrait of, you know, the, all these particular places at particular times, including um you know Cairo in the forties and uh Jerusalem and later lebanon and um it's it's it charts his youth, so it kind of ends when he goes to college in the states, if I remember correctly um and it's a lot about his family and it's also this uh, really quite delving and pretty harsh. Um, uh, you know, writing about his family and the family relationships. And you kind of feel like it was a reckoning with a lot of uh, what seems to have been a very unhappy childhood. Mm. Um, so he talks a lot about his parents and his siblings and his schools. Um, it's, it surprised me the degree to which, like, the wounds of his childhood seem to still be wide open. Like there was no emotional distance, it seemed to me. Well, there's there was, there's irony and there's the distance and the control of a writer. It's also very well written, but there was also still a lot of emotion in in talking about this time. So anyway, I think his his autobiography is very interesting um, if you're if you're sort of interested in the the person behind the work. And I think in his case, in particular, those two aren't very easy to separate. Right. Um, and then I read um, a book by Dominique Edé, who is a uh, Francophone Lebanese writer who had a relationship with Saeed for decades. Um, and she wrote a very lovely sort of portrait of him and his work. It's not trying to be a comprehensive biography. It's sort of more almost a continued imagined conversation with him, around him. Um, and it's called uh, Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel. And I really enjoyed that. I thought it was very um, sort of imaginative and affectionate and yet honest and original in its insights. And again, interested in the man as well as the work and actually quite explicit that you know, at how much ego and emotion and personal history were big parts of his work, and couldn't be taken out of it,
0: right, yeah, I've read a novel by her, the kite, maybe, uh and i I remember quite liking it.
1: I hadn't read anything before, and I thought this was a very nice tribute and um yeah, I mean, and I had hoped from the Brennan book to get more of because Saeed's scholarship is so big, mm. and there's just so much to absorb there. And he was so, I mean, he wrote so much and he was so active. And of course he evolved. And um, I kind of was looking for like a really good guide through his thought, because I feel like I have a kind of the familiarity that a lot of us do, because obviously his work had a lot of impact, but like, it's not a deep, knowledge at all right, right um and i just didn't feel that enlightened by by this book in terms of that it helped me really get a clearer handle um right on on what defined his his work or his le- and what to make of his legacy now so um i mean obviously he's a very interesting figure And I learned a lot of sort of interesting biographical details, but um, he remains sort of very full of contradictions, and I don't know, hard, 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 hard to sum up. And I kind of felt like a biographer's job is to is to is to do that work of trying to to Mm. you know, I, I mean to again yeah just to act to act as a guide like maybe you get it wrong but that's what a biographer has to do they have to at some point dig in and 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 assume the responsibility of telling you what a life meant and what the work meant too I think
0: well perhaps an opportunity for another writer then to try again
1: Yeah. I don't, yeah. Who knows? I don't know. This one was quite a brick. I mean, and pretty comprehensive. It has a lot, it has a lot of information, including he got access to, I think some rough drafts of novels that. Yeah. I I did did see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like he ever pursued, uh, you know, the fiction writing too seriously. Um, but it, but he did write, uh, several different, seemingly quite autobiographical novels um although i think really the the piece of writing that that is is very is very compelling and and is is a not it's not fiction because it's autobiographical but this this book out of place is sort of a lovely uh introduction to it's it's not academic writing it's more of this you know long personal essay Um, and, uh, and, and I, I really do recommend that one.
0: Beautiful. Yes. I had very mixed emotions about this. I saw many people lamenting, oh, if even Edward Said can't get his novels published, but I (laughs) I, I think probably he had pretty good connections in the publishing world. And if he had really set on a path to publishing his novels, I think... They would have been published.
1: I don't (laughs) think he finished them. I think Mm. they were like frag—they were fragments of novels. I don't think he even finished them. And then, yeah, it—it is a different form of writing, and there's maybe a level of self-exposure in creative writing that's different than he was very comfortable fighting and arguing and and. Battling publicly, I mean, and he was good at it. Uh, but that's a, that, I don't know. That's a sort of different kind of project. I'm thinking. Yeah. Also now, from so.
0: also from a personal <laughs> perspective, I was like, did he want even people to read those? I don't know. Right. I definitely don't yeah. want anyone to read my drafts. If I die, don't come for my drafts.
1: Well, you have to burn them or something. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I guess. will I have to find
0: my Max Broad friend who's willing to burn my drafts.
1: Yeah, or you have to do it yourself at a <laughs> time. I don't know. I wouldn't <laughs> trust anybody else. I mean, if it's so important to you, if you've got papers you really want destroyed, I think. Well, they're
0: not papers. It's just my computer. I guess I'll just throw it off the balcony before I go.
1: I can't. I mean, if you insist, Marsha <laughs> I do insist. <laughs> um, well, is there anything else or have we more or less caught up for now to what's been on our mind, what we've been working on, what we're looking forward to.
0: Oh, goodness. I think we've probably said enough. (laughs) All right.
1: Okay, cool. Um, Well, we're happy to be back. I'm happy to be back in my office. I'm happy to be back talking to you. I'm happy to be back to putting these episodes out regularly. Yes, me too. I'm very happy to be back. And. for all of you listeners if you don't mind uh reading the show sharing the show uh that's um always a boost for us and um you can follow us on twitter at at Books. and um
0: welcome back as well and we'll we'll be back in a couple weeks yes thanks everybody thanks for listening and sharing bye marcia bye ursula